So we're back with the Years of Lead podcast in our second episode about the massacre at Piazza Fontana, the fallout, and the ensuing trials. Here with Shane Burley, a our, our resident scholar and expert on anti-Semitism in the far right. How you doing, Shane? I'm 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 doing good. I'm excited. Um, and eager to learn more about Italy and uh, bombings and trials and, and everything that comes along with them. Excellent, excellent. So the first episode is breaking down the characters and how the controversy ensues. And this episode is going to be more about the trial and the effects of the Piazza Fontana case on the social climate of Italy in the 1970s. So just to to catch people up to speed, in the previous episode, we discussed a lot about the Piazza Fontana bombing, which occurred on December 12, 1969, and killed 17 people in Milan. The initial investigation into the Milan bombing and uh, simultaneous bombings in Rome centered on an anarchist named Pietro Valpreda and another named Giuseppe Pinelli. The two didn't get along, but were brought in for questioning, and Pinelli ended up flying out of a police headquarters window to his death. Some say he was thrown out by police. The police say that he killed himself. There's allegations of karate chops flying around. A lot of duplicity Uh, tossed back and forth, you know? (laughs) <laughs> it's been a it's wild a, ride sasha it's been a wild a ride total mess total mess um however the so-called anarchist trail dries up as investigators are led to a couple of far-right extremists operating out of padua named franco freda and giovanni ventura both members of the fascist organization ordine nuovo When Ventura's professor friend tipped off police that Ventura confessed to his involvement in the bombing, investigators found his close associate Freda had purchased timers and suitcases apparently identical to the ones used in the bombs. As well, investigators discovered that the anarchist Valpreda had been induced to create a far more radical splinter group from his original organization by a man named Mario Merlino, who had presented himself as a radical leftist, but was in fact a leading member of another fascist group called Avanguardia Nazionale. So Ventura and Freda are both arrested and Ventura implicates Freda in some other bombings that had taken place in the lead up to the deadly Piazza Fontana bombing. As the net widens, Ordine Nuovo member Marco Pozzan claimed that the head of the well-connected group, Pino Rauti, was also implicated. And with Rauti, another important figure is implicated. They're all snitching on each other right now. Yeah, it gets it. It's kind of like that in the in the early 70s. They're all sort of like talking to the police about this. And then the plot thickens as Rauti's close collaborator, Guido Giannatini, comes into focus. He's a key member of the entire transnational network of fascists that Ordine Nuovo and Avanguardia Nazionale are part of. In the previous episode, we went over some of the contours of this network, its connections to the Greek dictatorship, and its apparent strategy to enhance political tensions against the center from both left and right in order to bring about the disintegration of the modern world and its social conditions for liberal democracy. 
So the Piazza Fontana bombing appears to have been an important effort in this strategy, and the rage that it incited in the public is considered by many the opening of what would become known as the years of lead due to the large amount of assassinations, robberies, kidnappings, and politically motivated violence that would take place. So, so the lead, the lead from the years of lead is the bullets that were used in these assassinations. That's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea. And 1977 is called the, you know, the year of the P 38. Cause that was like the, the gun that everybody kind of thought was really cool. Um, yeah, so this leads down a lot of other paths, actually. But for now, we're just going to follow the Piazza Fontana massacre and its trial, um, or I should say trials, because right now, more Ordine Nuovo members are implicated in the bomb that killed 17 people in the center of Milan, one of Italy's most populous economic centers. On February 23rd, 1972, investigating magistrates issued the arrest of Merlino and his anarchist Patsy Valpredo for the attack, along with nine other defendants. The hearings basically dissolve within a week, but soon a different magistrate obtains the arrest of Pino Rauti himself, the head of Ordine Nuovo. The trial is moved back to Milan from Rome on March the 6th, and Freda and Ventura are also arrested. Ironically, on the 22nd of March, the same name as that of Merlino's phony anarchist honeypot. So the authorities are starting to sort of close the loop around these guys. Uh, but this is exactly where weird stuff starts to take place. Pino Rauti gets released by the end of April, although the charges against him remain. And he's elected as a deputy on the fascist party, the MSE's election ticket. While Valpreda, meanwhile, is nominated by a different left-wing splinter group called Il Manifesto. So are these like actually competitive like parties? Would they actually win seats? So, you know, Italy's parliamentary system works a little bit differently from the US. So if the if a party gets a certain percentage of the vote, then the then their MPs get to fill a certain percentage of the assembly, or I should say their deputies. So there would always be some politicians in government with the MSE or the Italian social movement. Uh, on the other hand, when you look at Il Manifesto, this was a relatively irrelevant sect of the ultra left. Um, I mean, they had a newspaper and it's actually still functioning to this day, Il Manifesto. And the group itself fell out with the Communist Party because they were a little bit too revolutionary and became an extra parliamentary faction. But it was not a particularly large faction. It could never compare, for example, to Lotta Continua in terms of just sheer numbers. Although the, the newspaper was somewhat significant, right? And it still to this day remains, you know, relevant on the Italian left. I mean, would this be like the, the autonomous break with the uh, Italian Communist Party? Would it be around that kind of split? Sort of. They had a different take on the Soviet Union and sort of authoritarianism. They were more inclined towards some of the sort of populist ideas, as well as a tentative relationship with the more workerist sect. 
But Manifesto was considered part of the new left generation than the Autonomia generation. Autonomia really kind of like sparked up in 1973-ish when the big new left groups like Potere Operaio and Lota Continua started to break down a little bit and have internal crises. And that's really where Autonomia kind of took off. But in at this point in 1972, it's really considered kind of like the glory days of the Italian new left, especially Lota Continua. So Manifesto was like a an influential but relatively small organization within the extra-parliamentary left during the 1970s. So they were still less significant than the fascists. Oh, they God. The brave front, but they weren't getting into office or anything. <laughs> so the Italian social movement was like the whole fascist. That was like the inheritor of Mussolini's social republic, you know, right. so the, so the, the, the Italian social movement was fairly large compared to other fascist organizations around Europe at the time. And at, in fact, at one point, the Christian Democrats under a guy named Tambroni attempted to coalesce with the MSE in order to create a decisive parliamentary coalition. And it, it pushed Italy close to civil war. There were just massive protests all over the country. A number of protesters were killed by police. And this was in 1960. And the crisis was only abated by the Christian Democrats sort of releasing the MSE from their coalition. And opening up to the left instead. And that's really where you see the beginnings of a pattern of the Christian Democrats attempting to bring the Socialist Party just close enough through concessions and compromises to accept the dominion of the Christian Democrats in order to avoid the massive unrest that a coalition with the fascist party would have caused on one hand, and on the other hand, the specter of actually completely losing power in the event of the Socialist Party coalescing with the Communist Party, which was the second biggest party in Italy. But this also undermines the, the ability of MSC to ever be part of a governing coalition, wouldn't it? Yes, exactly. So, so that's their argument for why they're starting to engage in the strategy of tension, because they, despite being, you know, under one banner, they're not going to get anywhere. Yes, in fact, that, that is exactly correct. Um, there was a real breakdown in Italian political life in 1963 and 1964, where the Christian Democrats were having a very difficult time finding a coalition partner in the Socialist Party. And there was a period where there was no government and the presiding president was starting to work out plans with a general named De Lorenzo to basically overthrow the parliamentary system and establish a presidentialist system that would not require coalitions between parties. And this was avoided right in the last minute by a coalition between the socialists and the Christian Democrats. And that was really kind of the inciting incident where I think a lot of people on the fascist right decided that simply abiding by the rules of parliamentary systems would always exclude them from power, while the Christian Democrats 
continued to sort of move to the left due to the Socialist Party's ability to keep the communists out of power. And, and so you really see the strategy of tension emerging the following year in 1965 with that meeting in the hotel that we talked about in the previous episode. And the strategy of tension just sort of escalates from 65 to 69, with one of the real climaxes appearing with the Piazza Fontana bombing. I mean, this seems to be a conclusion lots of people are reaching at that point, right? Like the you know, Red Army faction and like the the, the kind of breakdown of the Irish um, like democratic movements, like the civil rights movement and the kind of return to like, you know, the provisionals and that kind of thing. You feel like it's part of a part of a, a trend that was happening across Europe right then? Oh, certainly. But the the sort of the left wing escalation towards violence and revolutionism uh, really emerges at the end of the 1960s and early 1970s. Mm. So slightly after the collapse of fascist parliamentarism as like the the main strategy. Um, Because, you know, the Red Army faction forms in 1970, um bloody sunday happens in 1972 you see a, a massive growth of the ira the provost and in italy the turn towards armed struggle really hits its stride in 1973 mm. um so and and part of the reason for that is the failure of those attempted peaceful movements to actually engender the kind of change that they had hoped to create right Right. and the piazza fontana bombing which came at the very end of what was called the hot autumn you know italy's sort of massive worker period of workers unrest um it, it just sort of added insult to injury in a way for the revolutionary left at the time that they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to assemble all the workers, you know, in order to create a critical mass. And not only that, but like the fascists would be attacking the very heart of Italian society and blaming the left for it. Mm. So these kinds of outrages uh, really built up the anger within the left. And if you look at the statistics of right wing violence in Italy, Um, from the 60s up to like 1975, somewhere above 80% of the political violence was carried out by the far right. So when you start to see the Red Brigades and develop their most violent efforts and you start to see groups like the Nuclei Armati Proletari, uh, which is also a very violent organization, not to mention Prima Linea, those groups really start taking off after 1973. Yeah, I mean, people, there's this equivocation that happens a lot that, that somehow like the Weather Underground or Bader Meinhof or something are the equivalent of the right-wing violence. It's sort of absurd. It's minuscule in comparison. Um, yeah, it's, it's it. well, so the, the left sort of took the baton <laughs> in Italy and after 1975 and, and you started to see 
a whole lot more violence from the left. But before 1975, this was a pretty one-sided endeavor that was really marked by horrific violence against civilians in the forms of bombings in particular. Was there left-wing violence after, uh, after Hot Girl Summer? Was it Red Autumn? yeah hot workerist autumn (laughs) that's that's my calendar you know it's people on strike you know it's it's just all gleaming off their brow yeah 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 black and white photos of of a sweaty antonio negri (laughs) (laughs) just just rowing across the river in a speedboat you know wind in their hair down to the navel yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah um there there well so and this was something that lota continua was really kind of constantly advocating was this idea that proletarian violence could never really equal the violence of the state and that the far right violence always had to be considered part of the violence of the state which is why it's such a problematic way to understand violence oh I mean, they were a problematic organization. I mean, right. they, 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 in many ways, they were very, very clever and very intelligent, but in some other ways, they were profoundly stupid. For example, they uh, supported Pol Pot, you know, early on and, and, and that sort of Famous thing. Famous human liberator, Pol Pot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Known for his well treatment of all workers everywhere. I have I have a soft spot for Lotte Continua. They did some really marvelous things. They did like something like the uh, we'll get into it in another episode with Natasha Leonard. But they had a, a group in a very very poor area of Naples that was like a it was like the Black Panthers breakfast program, hmm. like a survival pending revolution program. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, of course, it went in a, a horrifying direction, but that's another story. So. Adding to the whole spectacle of publicity with these high-profile fascist activists getting arrested, Inspector Calabresi, one of the officers involved in the Pinelli, quote, suicide, is assassinated a week later in Milan. So <laughs> the left-wing Who's group... Who's the trigger person? Uh-huh. So, so Lotta Continua had been so dogged in attacking Calabresi as Pinelli's assassin, that the latter had actually sued them for defamation. So his, his death was immediately linked to those left-wing activists. Meanwhile, on the streets of Italy, graffiti read Calabresi Assassino, while headlines of right-wing dailies like La Stampa screamed Calabresi Assassinato. So like on the one hand in the streets, people are saying Calabresi is the one who killed Pinelli. On the other hand, in the headlines, they're, uh, they're just like absolutely terrified by this assassination. And in subsequent trials, the pretty much leaders of Lotta Continua ultimately went down for the murder of Calabresi. Hmm. Yeah, you know, so... it feels like one of the few times when they're there. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a certain element of like trying to do like of the far right trying to do kind of false flag operations where they actually want to like kind of make the left appear as though they're more threatening than they are. Is that does that yeah. seem like an accurate characterization of it? Well, that's definitely what seems to have happened with Piazza Fontana 
And then it was also attempted several other times. But the, the thing about it is that it always backfired. They always failed to pass it off. And when once the fascist organizations were exposed, it only served to increase the rage against them. Because with Piazza Fontana, just a weeks after the massacre, the MSE attempted to stage a rally against political violence. They really tried to capitalize it on it immediately when it was fascists who had done it. And this just really, really just you I, I don't know if you can you know, really kind of express the anger at the time that that caused. But part of the anger was tapped into by Lota Continua, which published a statement in their newspaper declaring after Calabresi's assassination, political murder is not the decisive weapon for the emancipation of the masses, even if this cannot lead us to deplore the killing of Calabresi, an act in which the exploited recognized their desire for justice. Oh, very ecumenical. Yeah, I'm sure that, 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 went, over, that went over the public. You know? Even though we can't say this is the right tactic. <laughs> Look, That's... everyone, I'm not going to tell you that killing people is wrong, okay? I'm just going to say it didn't work out for us necessarily. Yeah. It's not yeah. not wrong. <laughs> Yeah, so let's continue to kind of show their ass there. The news went off like a bombshell. Many doubted that Pinelli had jumped to his death and implicated Calabresi, but Calabresi had always presented himself as kind of a liberal in designer suits, guy who voted social democrat. He loved headlines. He loved his face in the paper. And he was also reportedly investigating international arms trafficking that may have looped in far-right groups at the time of his death, raising suspicion of a right-wing conspiracy here, like you're kind of uh, intimating there. While some theorists believe that Calabresi was also a victim of right-wing terror masquerading as leftist revenge. Years later, a Lota Continua member would confess to having committed the crime Uh, along with some of his very important higher-ups, who he then said, you know, asked him to do it. I think we might do a whole episode on the Calabresi trial that ended up... It was... But let's just put it this way. It was really a messy trial, and a lot of people don't really believe that Adriano Sofri, who was kind of the leader of Lota Continua and went to jail for this, had anything to do with it. So... That's kind of like a messy story within the story. How stable um, is the political situation in Italy generally at this point? Like, is this like, I, I don't know a lot about the periods of Italian politics in general, but, you know, we're, we're talking about what, like a few decades after, I mean, like three decades after the Second World War. This can't be, there has to be like sort of a, there's a break in, in continuity of governing how do people feel about the state in general? How comfortable do people feel with the status quo? There are some figures who are really kind of like gluing the state together as it's coming apart. People like Noberto Bobbio, who are like these kinds of classical liberal constitutionalists, Mm -hmm. they're really like the intelligentsia of Italy. And they're somehow able to restore confidence in the Republic, despite all of the unrest that's taking place. 
But, you know, by this point in February 1972, there have just been a litany of crises. There was a revolt, a full-scale revolt that lasted months and months and months in the southern state of Calabria. And then there was also a revolt in La Marca. In Milan, there's this protest movement from the far right that's emerging in 1972 called the Silent Majority Protests. There are stochastic attacks on electricity pylons carried out by various groups. And 1973, you're going into contract negotiations, so there's a massive wave of strikes. At the same time, during this period of the early 70s, there's large, large rent strikes and eviction resistance going on throughout the major cities, Mm. as well as what's called self-reduction, which is when people stop paying the electricity rate hikes and then also telephone bills and stuff like that. So unrest in Italy at this point is escalating. And then in like 1973, you have the oil embargo and the oil crisis, you know, as a result of the Yom Kippur War. And that really hits Italy super hard, the economic crisis that develops apace in the mid-1970s and causes huge inflation problems. Italy is not a very stable democracy at this point. Right. And, and of course, the, the Piazza Fontana trial feels to everybody like a mirror to the unrest within Italy. Determining that a fair trial of the accused in the Piazza Fontana massacre couldn't take place amid all the active turmoil in Milan, which was cast in the most scandalously unflattering light, the trial is moved to the remote city of Catanzaro in Calabria, a city only accessible by train at that time. So the trial is held up for years. We're really talking about a country still kind of developing infrastructure, like for it to be only accessible by train. So yeah, I mean that, I guess that speaks a lot to the, to the stability of the system. Do you think that there's correlations between the way that that trial is seen then and the way that maybe like the, the, capital six insurrection trials will be happen now where there'll be like the disbelief in the neutrality of the court system or of the evidence on a number of sides. And it'll also be kind of emblematic of the crisis of conflict that we're in right now. Yeah. So first of all, infrastructure in Italy was a huge part of how Marshall Plan funds were spent. Mm. And the developmentalist economy in Italy kind of led to a ton of internal construction happening, freeways being a big part of that, during what was called the economic boom period of the late 50s and early 60s. But that really started to stagnate, especially once you started to hit inflation and a lot of labor unrest in the early 70s. As workers demanded, you know, an increase in the value of life, right? In the social wage. And as a result of those two things, you started to see the sort of restructuring of Italian economics in keeping with the neoliberal style. There was an increasing decentralization. Workers were called on to be more flexible about their hours, partly in order to prevent collective organizing. 
and you know there's uh, deregulation happening and it's kind of the beginning of outsourcing so one thing to remember about the going into the mid 70s is that economic transformation as this trial is taking place and the fact that the trial is taking place in Catanzaro in Calabria which is like the hotbed of the Indrangheta which is the Calabrian mafia that also didn't work wonders for people's faith in the actual prosecution of these defendants because the Andrangheta were just sort of emerging as, you know, one of the most important mafia organizations in the whole world. So, yeah, regarding 1-6, I think one of the issues that distinguishes it, however, is that we're here right now, we're talking about 1972 and the trial hasn't even started yet. You know, they're just they're just shuffling it around. They're moving it all the way to this relatively remote place. And the victim's families actually have to ride the train down to Catanzaro to view the trial in pursuit of justice for their loved ones, spending their own money and time towards these ends. And by 1973, the hot headed Valpreda from the March 22nd group is actually freed. And in quick succession, Marco Pozzan, the man whose room was next to the fascist meeting space at the university in Padua, he's given a phony diplomatic passport and uses it to flee to Spain. Giannettini, who's plugged into the transnational network, is able to break out of jail and exfiltrate to France. So these guys who are tied up in this plot are like slowly leaving Italy as the trial closes in in 1973. Now, Ventura tries to get Giannettini to press for his innocence while he's abroad, but instead Giannettini sends his wife a set of keys and some tear gas only available through military or police sources. This is maybe seen as like a a safeguard against him getting pulled back into Italy. Ventura would later produce these items in court while trying to gain acquittal, and the key did in fact work in a jail cell. So the fact is that Giannettini has access to this military and uh, penitentiary equipment, suggesting that he has been part of the Italian security state. And here we go. Another bombshell drops. Giulio Andriotti, one of the most powerful players on the right-wing faction of the Christian Democratic Party, admits that Giannettini is actually a military intelligence informant. So so now suspicions of a grand cover-up are impossible to avoid. But Giannettini comes clean with a version of events that contradicts Ventura's. So whereas Ventura claimed to be a a military intelligence agent himself, infiltrating the far right through Freda's cell, Giannettini, who's a confirmed military intelligence informant, claims that Ventura was infiltrating the left at the behest of Franco Freda. So the effect of the contradicting testimony was to throw a wrench in the workings of the trial something that was perhaps actually planned by the fascists all along, you know, create confusion about who's in the military intelligence and who isn't, who's infiltrating the left and who isn't. That's sort of a strategy of tension all its own, you know, like creating enough dissension and the ability of a trial to find the truth or there to be an objectivity of truth 
Oh, uh, totally. That, that sort of uh, lends the aims too. No, absolutely. And 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 while Giannettini is in Paris, he's also working with the other defendants, Freda and Ventura, to assemble their stories through an intermediary, a guy named Claudio Muti, who we'll discuss in future episodes. So a clutch of fascist revolutionaries are finally indicted for the Piazza Fontana case in 1975, <laughs> including the openly fascist Freda and Ventura, their associate Pozzan, the far-right man with the military intelligence ties, Giannettini, and the March 22nd group comrades, both Mario Merlino and Valpreda in Rome, along with Claudio Muti. So Freda flees immediately to Costa Rica, and Ventura attempts to prove his, uh, his own military intelligence bona fides by referring investigators to a safety deposit box where they find documents purporting to be confidential military intelligence files. Now, whether he gained access to the files through an intermediary like Giannettini and planted them in the box as a failsafe to make himself look important, connected, and blameless is unclear. Pretty, pretty put together to do that. I mean, that's that's yeah. some, that's some serious psyop, you know. Um, yeah, I can't imagine, you know, Adam Waffen pulling that kind of thing off today. Right, right, right. When asked later in court if he was manipulated by the secret services, Freda declared, "Quote: The life of everyone is manipulated by those with more power. In my case, I accept that I have been a puppet in the hands of an idea." but not the hands of men in the secret services here or abroad. That is to say that I have voluntarily fought my own war following the strategic design from my ideas. That is all. I don't know about that. Meanwhile, the trial dragged the spectacle on for years, bringing different generals in front of the court who contradicted each other's testimony. Military intelligence chief Michelli insisted that the intelligence agency knew about Giannettini's status at the highest level, clearing their denials with the president of the Republic through the Ministry of Defense. But Michelli's testimony was denied by another general, Severio Malizia, who said that the military intelligence needed no such clearance. So why would they bother to go through uh, the Ministry of Defense and clear everything with the uh, president of the Republic? The court, however, agreed with Michelli, determining that Malizia had perjured himself by denying knowledge of Giannettini's status. So this led to a year's sentence for General Malizia and opened the door to an indication of complicity at the highest levels of power. So in 1978, three years into this trial and almost 10 years after the massacre, a number of women gathered for the Manifestazione delle Donne contro il, il Terrorismo, during which Francesca... Say that again Den faster. Yeah. <laughs> Francesca Dendena proclaimed, since that tragic day, my family is driven by one ideal only. We want justice obtained. We demand the guilty be identified and we want them to pay for their horrible wrongs. This is the only way to stop terrorism and its development during these years. And this is the only way for the Italian state to reacquire its credibility from a democratic point of view. We immediately demand to give us back the rights that have been taken away from us. We will never react with violence 
toward the use of violence. This manifestation and similar efforts gave rise to the group Unione dei Familiari delle Vittime per Stragi, Union of the Families of Victims of Massacres, of which Dendena would later become president. Like a lot of activist groups, the irony of the Unione was that it stood for something that would be generally embraced and was appreciated in private, but which lacked proper representation in public life. Instead, activist groups tend to stand out like a sore thumb, causing embarrassment and castigation. They call for scrutiny, but are themselves ultimately scrutinized. So a culture of victimhood emerged increasingly during the years of lead and ensuing bombings, where support for victims could become a rallying cry to end victimization. And the silence and delays of justice, the opacity of the processes of the court amid continued bombings, assassinations, and political violence, continued the suffering. Thankfully, the Unione won remittances for families of bombing victims in 1983, and then again in 1990, But the monies went to victims from massacres occurring after Piazza Fontana, cruelly excluding the Piazza Fontana victims' families. Meanwhile, a majority of attention went to terrorists, fascists, and the intellectuals defending them. So victims are not as glamorous as bombers. And another part of the Unione's uh, activism lay in attempting to rescind the so-called state secrets law set into place in 1977. Under this law, the state secret, this is a quote, the state secret is used to hide acts, documents, news, activities, and everything else whose diffusion would create troubles or dangers to the democratic state's integrity, even referring to international agreements that the Italian constitution explains to be the basis for democracy to the free enterprise of other institutions' functions, to the state's independence toward other states, to the international relations toward them, to the preparation and to the military defense of the state itself. So the State Secret Act 1977 serves to obfuscate as much as the government really wants to obfuscate under the pretense of the defense of democracy. And this is something that the Unione is arguing against because they think it's being used to cover up state complicity in some of these far-right attacks. I mean, were, were their claims on this ever vindicated? It's sort of getting there. Um, in January 1979, as the court reached its first verdict, Ventura flees to Argentina. The next month, Freda and Ventura are... Luck. Like, yeah. Hey, just, yeah, always a good one. You don't flee exoneration very often. Yeah, you don't flee exoneration and you don't flee to Argentina if you're not a Nazi. <laughs> yeah, what is it about Argentina? <laughs> general if you flee to Argentina, you are not, it's not a good look, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so the next, the next month, Freda and Ventura are, are indeed declared guilty of the bombing and condemned to life in prison for the massacre while Giannettini is declared guilty of being their accomplice and also sentenced to life. The judges in the trial outlined the structure of the organization like this. And let me, let me know how this sounds to you. The subversive organization was active throughout the country, performing a number of gradually more severe terrorist attacks or acts 
aimed to upset the social order and to destroy the bourgeois state structures. According to the depositions, the subversive group was born with a Nazi fascist ideology. It consisted of a Venetian component whose head was Franco Freda and a Roman one led by Stefano della Chiaia. Its strategy had been plotted during a crucial meeting in Padua on 18th of April, 1969, which had been attended by Freda and other leaders of the Venetian and Roman cells. In that meeting, the program of the so-called second line or second organization was conceived, namely to exploit the left-wing extremist groups by means of appropriate infiltration and provocation maneuvers in order to involve them in the attacks and make them appear responsible for a subversive activity whose origin, on the contrary, was rooted in the right. Oosh. Okay. I mean... Kind of clarifies things. It does. It does. I find it. It's. It's all. I think it's hard to sort of buy any claim that bad behavior is essentially a psyop of some kind. Um, primarily because anyone that knows any organization knows that generally people are they are filled with people who make poor choices because such is life, um, and it's hard to like blame it across ideological lines. But at the same time, I mean that is sort of part of this whole model of tension of creating that sort of sense that there's like an impending threat that justifies your existence. And the right really yeah. does base its sort of legitimacy of violence on the, the creation of a threat, whether it's you know, Antifa or, right. or, or Jewish militants, whatever it is that justifies such extreme action. So it does seem ideologically consistent at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so Merlino and Valpreda managed to avoid a guilty verdict, but the court did note the possibility of Valpreda acting as a dupe for Merlino, serving as an agent provocateur for De La Chiaia. But you're you're absolutely correct that this doesn't cast off any accountability on Valpreda for acting like such a tool. But this is the interesting part, I think, especially the court went on to single out Giannettini's involvement as an indictment of the state itself, declaring, quote, Giannettini gave Freda and Ventura the assurance that they could count on influential support from the very state apparatuses which they meant to subvert, and which harbored elements that were willing to give the bombings a political outlet. Guido Giannettini was the crucial link between those elements, still without a name and a face, interested in controlling the terrorist activity for their own end and the Freda-Ventura cell. Hence, his role was a first rank one. So this is incredible. The court in its first verdict basically declared that Giannettini was an agent, not an informant, that he was actually a link between elements within the military intelligence and the Ordine Nuovo through which the military intelligence had hoped to control the Franco Freda and Ventura cell which would then, like you said, heighten tensions and increase the stigma of the left. Is this sort of like a COINTELPRO operation that they actually feel like the left threatens the state enough that they're going to sort of ally with other insurrectionary elements to undermine it? Precisely. There is a sort of interesting correlation here. The, the Italian far right, even the extra parliamentary right, uh, actually kind of supported Richard Nixon, whereas when Nixon went to Italy, he was greeted with huge protests from the extra parliamentary left. And um, the right 
in Italy so identified with Nixon that they named their big protest movement in Milan the Silent Majority Movement, right? Mm. Which was obviously taken from a speech delivered by Nixon, but written by Pat Buchanan, a famous white nationalist. So yeah, there's there's some sentiment ranging from speculation to concern to theorization that that the security services of Italy when operating in tandem with the Ordine Nuovo through Guido Giannettini were in fact functioning as part of a larger interstate network that was promoted by the White House under Richard Nixon. I mean, this seems to be the prerogative of the anti-communist movements was to use as many insurrectionary right-wing elements as possible to disrupt them with the idea, like, you know, almost right. like a kind of guerrilla, like protracted war, like a, a guerrilla war to use these uh, agents opportunistically, but it's not the only time. I mean, what corollaries do you see between that and today and the U.S. far right? No, exactly. I mean, this is where it gets so complex and we can simply look to the Trump administration as a direct analog. You know, the Trump the Trump administration absolutely worked to establish ties with the far right, even when it had to disassociate from them when it became inconvenient. For example, the firing of their speechwriter who had given a talk at a white nationalist conference. Um, Or, I mean, abandoning the January 6th rioters too you know that was opportunistic when it happened and trump was not certainly not there for the people now facing serious criminal charges right and also with the trump administration you have different factions and so you can assign blame to roger stone or steve bannon for cultivating these uh deep connections with say the proud boys or you know parts of the u.s militia movement while Trump can uh, in some ways attempt to wash his hands of those given different coalitions within his administration, you know, and you see a lot of trash talk on, for example, Kushner from the far right Trump loyalists. And I think you see the same type of stuff happening in Italy at the time where Andriotti is trying to expose sections of the military intelligence through his exposure of Giannettini uh, at that opportune moment. But Andriotti himself was tied to other figures who also featured within some of the shadows of this uh, uh, intricate far-right network. So we have to kind of limit our focus, in a sense, in order to not make too many sweeping generalizations, which would lead us to believe, for example, that Richard Nixon ordered the Piazza Fontana massacre, something like that, right? It's much... Boom. Sasha said it. (laughs) Established history. That's Dr. Reed Ross right there telling you that uh, Nixon pulled the trigger. But so, so, so Giannettini, who had escaped from prison and exfiltrated, is a little bit let off the hook in comparison to some of these other figures who end up with life sentences. But at the same time, General Maletti and Captain Labruna, who we'll bring up in future episodes as we sort of zoom in on the 1970s and especially the year 1974, those two guys are actually convicted in these trials of enabling Giannettini's escape. And they're both sentenced to jail. So this is two generals and a captain 
who are sentenced to jail for corruption, one for perjury and two for enabling the exfiltration of an agent of the secret services. And then after a year on the run, Freda is also subsequently captured and brought into Italy to serve his own sentence. So this is a massive trial. It does sort of the effect of what the Italian social movement wanted to do, which was to create sort of a distrust in the liberal liberal democratic institutions of the state anyway, right? Like, I mean, it, yeah. it, it did that, I'm guessing. I, I, you know, like if, if, if the response to COINTELPRO in the U.S. is any indication of how this was taken there, it's sure it probably sparked generational distrust in the Italian government. Right. And so, again, when we're talking about COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO having been a program fairly restricted to the FBI, and we can kind of see the military intelligence organization agency, the SID, as an analog to the FBI. But at the same time, it appears that the FBI and the CIA both had some activity within Italy. And so, yeah, what I think that this does is it really throws into light the factionalism at the heart of Italian politics. Um, And rather than resolving everything with a very simple answer, you know, the, the judges make it really clear in their verdict when they say there's a collaboration with the state whose names remain in the shadows. So long story short, yeah, this, this, this really kind of opens up more questions than answers and things get a lot worse as appeals follow quickly on the heels of the trial. And so the appellate court moves the trial from Catanzaro to an even smaller town called Potenza, which... Does this one have roads? Yeah, I think it does at least have roads, but it's smaller than Catanzaro. So in Potenza, the appellate court dismantled all the judgments from the first court. First, General Milizia's perjury conviction gets overturned, short-circuiting the connection between the state and the bombers. The government ministers were all let off the hook for Giannettini's involvement, and the defense set about downplaying the danger of the Paduan cell, calling Freda's efforts little more than, quote, strange and utopian theories. End quote. Much was made of Lorenzen's contradictory statements. If you recall last episode, Lorenzen was one of the guys who exposed Ventura in the first place, showing that he had admitted to being involved. But then he started making contradictory statements in order to throw people off and probably to please the fascists who are breathing down his neck at this point. The defense makes much of his contradictory statements. And the physical evidence of the timers in the bags was actually thrown out or at least written off as the court ignored the testimony of those to whom Ventura had divulged information about targeting banks and using metal boxes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So despite rubbishing all the evidence, (laughs) the appeals court actually developed an incisive understanding of what had transpired. The determination of the appeals judges basically showed that the anarchists implicated in the massacre had been duped by the fascists into participating in the plot organized by the Paduan cell under Freda and acting in concert with the Roman group under De La Chiaia and his deputy Merlino. 
Despite the meetings between Delakiaia and the Paduans, the appeals court disregarded evidence of their connection and ruled that while the plot existed in the structure identified by the first court, not enough evidence could prove guilt. Furthermore, the appeals court determined that Giannettini was working with the military intelligence, but brushed off any negative implications with the high pronouncement, quote, is it conceivable that the cream of the service would be involved in a conspiracy? It is not. So it cannot have happened. Jesus. Yeah. So forget that Giannettini was an avowed fascist who had been involved in authoring tracts on counterinsurgency against the left by civilians in connection with a secret military and intelligence network. He couldn't have possibly taken part in those types of activities. He had written all about the strategy of tension. He was an active part in its theorization. He was closely connected to Pino Rauti in his authorship. He shared a byline with him. So this is his thing. I mean, like, we know that. <laughs> Everybody knows that. That's, you, can't, you can't throw that out, but you can throw it out as evidence. Um, you can say, okay, well, he wrote about the strategy of tension. He theorized the strategy of tension, but he was not involved in it. Or there isn't enough evidence to convict him of being involved in it because we've already thrown out all the material evidence that exists. I mean, yeah, and this is also the defense that's made by like kind of fascist intellectuals all the time that their stuff is you know, for entertainment purposes only, and that they're not actually involved in any of the actual work of it. Yeah. And as to how Giannettini was able to escape, the appeals court determined that the head of military intelligence, General Michelli, assisted the informant out or agent out of his own personal interest rather than as part of a coordinated effort to cover for one of their agents. So they're saying Michelli was just like, buddy we go way back i guess i'll like help you get out of prison here's the key take care out there (laughs) (laughs) um thus in 1981 freda ventura giannettini valpreda and merlino were all acquitted of the massacre on appeal but freda and ventura do get sentenced to 15 years for the train bombings that took place months before the piazza fontana massacre so they so, got rounded up into something, even though the, the victims of this trial never really got recourse on it. Yeah, it looks like a classic kind of uh, effort to, to, to be able to say exactly that, to save a little bit of face, you know, by being like, right. you know, like with Al Capone, you know, we got him on tax yeah. evasion or something. Totally, totally. This happens all the time on, on this kind of like master. And I think in a way it happens like through excessive civil litigation, like the the lawsuits on like Heimbach and, and Richard Spencer around Charlottesville is sort of a way of yeah. saying like, you know, clearly these people are responsible for a wave of alt-right violence, but we can't find anything to prosecute them on. So we'll, you know, give like large judgments in civil litigation. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but there's one more stage to this process. The next court to take on the verdict of the appeals court is the final stop in the trial. So there's like a Supreme Court that deals with appeals of appeals. And this final court noted serious problems with the process, stating, quote, the single items of evidence were assessed by the appellate court, not only in an atomistic manner, 
but at times were distorted, ignoring circumstances that would have been crucial within the proper framework of the defendant's overall behavior. Distortions, contradictions, and disregard of relevant elements are nowhere more evident than in the arguments the appellate court used to discredit one of the main pillars of the prosecution, i.e. the explosive devices used by the defendants. The first degree's reconstruction was based on a set of objectively ascertained elements, determined the final court. The second degree court contrasted them with more conjectures that were logically faulty, and it ignored crucial facts. So they're really castigating that appeals court, but the final court determined that the appellate court actually reached the appropriate conclusions about the case, despite neglecting to acknowledge the burden of proof that actually existed. In particular, the court decided that Giannettini should be acquitted of being an accomplice since he merely served the role of an informant. Finally, in 1985, the acquittals were upheld based on, quote, insufficient evidence. So these guys get off for the Piazza Fontana bombing Despite the fact that the the appeals court determined that the structure of the organization was correctly laid out in the first trial and the Supreme Court ruling that the appeals court had completely ignored evidence and manipulated it. So, So it's a complete mess. Finally, in 1985, this is when the, the court comes to its decision. And people are just distraught because this is 16 years of going through all of this. Um, And you might think this is the end of the process. This is the end of the process. Oh, I I don't imagine. (laughs) Because it's not. It's not at all. There's a a second trial because people are like, okay, if it wasn't these guys, then, then who do you think it was? You know, and by this time, the court is, nobody believes what the court is saying. It's very polarizing. So, a new process starts out in 1989 with a different host of suspects. During the course of that trial, a court expert finds 150,000 uncatalogued interior ministry files just hanging out in a spot outside of Rome. Which is like a, like a, the, the back of a basement somewhere? Yeah, just like kind of just like stowed off a highway somewhere. Um, so this is wild, like 150,000 uncatalogued interior ministry files just like bust out. Well, it took some time and we're already 20 years out from the actual bombing itself. Dendena's Unione still believed that Ordine Nuovo had carried out the bombing and that a parallel state was protecting it. In 1992, on the 22nd anniversary of the massacre, as trials are still going on, Dendena declared, many times we saw the state divided into two different parts. From one side, the institutional one represented by honest magistrates working to ensure the truth. From the other side, a parallel one that worked in order not to discover the truth itself, operating against its obtainment, letting years and years go by. So during the second process, three Ordine Nuova members are uh, pretty clearly exposed. Their names are Delfo Zorzi, Carlo Maria Maggi and Giancarlo Rognoni. I like you're about to tell me that like these uh, prosecutions are still going on. There'll be a trial next year. <laughs> right? 
So this is where it gets crazy. What, one explains how Zorzi reminded us that according to our greatest theorists, even blood can serve as a trigger for a national revolution, which launched in Italy could be the salvation of Europe by rescuing it from communism. He picked up on the line that had already been given out in Padua, that the common people, stricken and defenseless, would clamor for a strong state, especially since the strategy anticipated that such serious incidents would be laid at the door of the far left, right? So according to another informant, Zorzi remarked, quote, that the anarchists had no hand or part in anything and they had been used as scapegoats simply because of their history. That sort of charge leveled against them was believable. And that in reality, the Milan and Rome attacks had been thought up and commissioned at the highest levels and actually carried out by the Triveneto Ordine Nuovo. Triveneto is a basically cluster of regions based in, in the Veneto. So the Paduan cell, basically. Furthermore, an informant named Delio told the judge that Zorzi had confessed in 1973. Quote, I was personally involved in the operation to plant the bomb at the Banca Nazionale dell'Agricoltura. Further, end quote. Further, Zorzi, quote, did use the term, quote, operation as if it had been a wartime operation. So Zorzi is definitely getting exposed. Zorzi... Maggi and Rognoni are sentenced to life for the massacre in 2001. But here comes the appeals. In particular, judges contending with the admissions of so-called penitenti or culprits who then confess have to recognize that people involved in crimes don't always tell the truth about their associates. They're often guilty themselves and snitch on others to get lighter sentences, or they aren't guilty and neither are the ones that they accuse. They simply want to get things over with and are unscrupulous enough to throw an innocent comrade under the bus. So in 2004, the second level of Italian courts incredibly absolved all the suspects accused in the trial to the pained disappointment of nearly everyone, especially the victims' families. In a statement, Dendena declared, my father wanted and deserved justice. It seems like the Italian processes for far-right bombings are structured only to absolve, never to condemn. The next year, the third level confirmed the prior court's verdicts, ordering the victim's families to pay for the trial, thereby adding insult to injury. But even worse still, the ruling noted that those acquitted in 1985 had been the true culprits. They, mm-hmm. just, they just couldn't be retried under double jeopardy rules since they had already been acquitted. And uh, yeah, so Francesca Dendena called this the, quote, tombstone on the Piazza Fontana bombing. Piazza Fontana will remain one of Italy's black holes, she told Il Giorno in 2005. There are still truths that can't be confessed. We're both disappointed and demoralized. In the end... Common people always pay. I mean, 2005, you know, I was in college in 2005. Yes. So <laughs> decades and decades afterwards. All right. Yeah, so, it, so, seemed, it seemed like the common trend here is that everyone blames anarchists because they're a very easy target. Yep. 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 Basically. But are you ready for, speaking of blaming anarchists, are you ready for this curveball? 
<laughs> the anarchists really did do it 40 <laughs> years later. So outside of the second trial, the Red Brigades had conducted their own investigation. <laughs> like, like, like doing interviews, like inspectors. Yeah. So, so the far left group responsible for a number of kidnappings and assassinations found that uh, Valpreda had indeed planted the bomb and was assisted, after all, by the group associated with Pinelli, who may have actually killed himself in disgrace. So the, so the Red Brigades kind of blow everything up by claiming that the anarchists indeed had been involved in the bombings and were being directed by fascists and that Are, Pinelli might have thrown himself out of the window simply because when faced with the, the reality that he had been collaborating with fascists, he just couldn't take it. So like, are they trying to play a stage like a partisan political attack on anarchists? Is that part of what's happening? I don't know. Um, the Red Brigades were pretty clearly Marxist and they had like an entire theoretical system that they had developed in which all of their actions had a very specific kind of calculus. Yeah, it's like, a, like almost like a cultic political conception. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, very they much so. Far from like libertarian on social stuff. Yeah, and they also were far from libertarian on women's issues as well. Totally. You know, they were quite conservative. But you can say the same thing for a lot of groups in the extra parliamentary left. Um, oh yeah, yeah. The RAF is not breaking records on most of these things. I, I feel like there's like a people look back at some of those groups as those are kind of have like a fabled history, but they're often just problematic groups of these these small, violent, problematic people. I think we, yeah, we just have to take stock of history as being comprised of problematic people who often make bad decisions sometimes have lofty ideals and rarely actually kind of measure up to them i mean i rarely i rarely agree with anyone before like the year 1990 you know like i I feel like most people well most people now have a lot of work to do but uh we're talking about 40 50 years ago i am certainly that is the case yeah, it's it's actually kind of interesting how um, the rise of the armed struggle in Italy takes place and kind of takes a leading role in disintegrating some of those new left groups at the same time as the women's movement is really taking off um, yeah. and also disintegrating some of those new left groups that are highly patriarchal. And so you see, on one hand, a lot of the patriarchy moving away from mass organizing and towards coordinated armed violence. And then on the other hand, you see social movements rising up in the form of like the women's movement in the mid and late seventies, kind of dismantling a lot of the patriarchal new left organizations as it, as it moves forward. I think it's also just a look at, you know, that, that groups like these can be mixed, you know, people can sort of have like sympathies with the anti-capitalist politics, a lot of groups, and then see other things they find incredibly reactionary or uh, unjustified. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I, well, I was, I was doing a bit of my own years of lead research just a moment ago. And I feel like I'm going to blow a future episode, but there was just arrests uh, last year, uh, around the years of lead in France. Yes. I yes, mean, the I mean this, is, 
this is 50 years almost you know like we're getting close there um yeah but like the legacy has continued well, France had this thing called the Mitterrand Doctrine, uh, where um, it's like non-tradition, basically. Well, they had this this doctrine from their socialist president, where they would sort of uncomfortably accept some political refugees from Italy, recognizing that uh, the Italian state was actually acting in a pretty oppressive fashion towards right. the left following the assassination of Aldo Moro, and so you had like people like Antonio Negri in exile in France well into the 90s and and some people remaining in France into yeah very recently that's interesting so yeah a number of researchers believe that the Piazza Fontana massacre was likely carried out by members of both trials who had connections and were given a roof by some members of the state without necessarily having their specific acts ordered or supported by those actors. And indeed, there is some mention in the reports on the matter of a Secret Services agent catching wind of the act in advance back in December 1969 and seeking to intercept the culprits ahead of the massacre, which would perhaps indicate both the involvement and knowledge of the Secret Services, but not necessarily their direction or support. Others assert still that Piazza Fontana was a, quote, state massacre. This was always Lotta Continua's line, uh, that it was carried out with the direct involvement of military intelligence under the direction of the CIA operating under the auspices of NATO. Um, and from there, the innumerable conspiracy theories become too difficult to trace, each relying on elaborate associations that range from the plausible to the laughable. You know, you, sometimes you get the Rothschilds wandering in theorizing a lot of places yeah, yeah they, they're, they're wandering <laughs> they're of a wandering people i've heard <laughs> anyway so yeah but, but theorizing about the massacre brings little new light to the case and offers no restitution for the victims or their families in in 2007 Italy instituted a new Memorial Day for the victims of terrorism and bombings, instated on May 9th, the day of the assassination of Aldo Moro, which we'll cover in a future episode. And in 2009, a group dedicated to the Piazza Fontana bombing was established through the Comitato Antifascista per la Defensa dell'Ordine Repubblicano. In the meantime, activists worked to realize a house of memory in Milan that would be committed to maintaining the stories of the victims and their relations, while restoring clarity to political acts that some groups hoped to distort for their own purposes. Dendena herself unfortunately died on October 2nd, 2010, 41 years after the bombing that would define her public career. She'd rejected offers to become a candidate for political office, hoping instead to work within civil society for cultural change to refocus the public's attention on those whose lives were destroyed rather than the macho terrorists attacking public life. Of course, since Dendena's death, the commemorations of the Piazza Fontana bombing have not gone smoothly. Although it involved the participation of high-level politicians, including the mayor of Milan and the president of Lombardia, the 2009 anniversary, uh, audience members engaged in booing and insulting different political figures. The next year, the anniversary was carried on for three days, during which an awkward political debate took place about the extent of the strategy of tension. 
But I'll end with a quote from researcher Luciano Lanza. Quote, no one is to be guilty of the, quote, mother of all outrages. This is how reason of the state wants it to be. Luckily, there are some who refuse to play ball. Every 12th of December, many thousands of students demonstrate in so many squares around Italy and in Milan. And the Milan procession ends in the Piazza Fontana. That outrage remains an indictment of the criminality of the powers that be. Oosh. That's a hard story to swallow right there. It's a... Yeah, it it really... if you if you hold a mirror up to you know the Italian Republic and all of the twists and turns that it took in the 1970s in particular, the Piazza Fontana trial almost serves as like a microcosm. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's a profound indictment of not just certain figures and not necessarily a conspiracy of the state, but more like the state as a kind of protector of itself and the problems that lie within it. And some of those problems involve these sort of obscure networks that reach from sort of ground level fascist organizations up to the security services with connections to uh, international entities, right? So does this undermine like the ability, I mean, I think this, this calls into question the ability of the state to actually interfere with these groups in any kind of dependable way. Yeah. And that was really that was really the dilemma that so many people faced. And I think that, you know, we're starting out this podcast with the story of Piazza Fontana. It really serves to show these empty places of trauma within Italy as the political violence is unfolding. And in many cases, it appears that this political violence is unfolding precisely in those empty places where there's no answer to the question, right? Where there's no speedy access to trial, where defendants are just apparently escaping, not just Italy, to other countries in Europe, like Spain and France, but to Argentina, you know, (laughs) and free to carry on their their violence, their provocations, their plottings, while the state just sort of rolls this Sisyphus-type boulder up a hill. It just shows how that sort of bureaucratic, administrative state broke down. There's also, I mean, there's also the structural unwillingness to do it. Like you talked about the state. I mean, it reminds us, I think, that the state is not one singular entity, but it has competing organizations and interests and people and and constituencies. And not all of those have the same like designation of what justice is or the need to find the conclusion. And in this case, it's uh, and in this case, and in many cases, it sounds like elements of the state were in direct kind of 
um, objection to justice being found for the victims of the of far right violence. It's hard to explain it any other way, even mm-hmm. if you're trying to. Yeah. I know because I've I've, I've tried. <laughs> but the 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 real kind of stressful thing about it is that when when an indictment is issued against the state precisely as an inefficient, self-contradictory cluster of sects and rival sects and groups and parties and so forth, the alternative seems to be the disintegration of the system and the creation of a state that speaks in one voice, which Mm. is a fascist desire. Right. So the very crisis of the Piazza Fontana trial in a sense, like was a fascist crisis. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, fa- it was a, it was a crisis caused by fascists, certainly. And the entire ensuing breakdown throughout all the trials only served to kind of enhance the, the position that the fascists were putting forward against the state. It was very difficult to, reinforce the credibility of the state when this trial is proceeding at such a slow rate and the victims are sort of being alienated to this extent you know the victims it shows the continuity i mean a certain degree of continuity with interwar fascism and this idea that that those movements were effectively destroyed and that that kind of this this vague neo-fascism is an entirely contemporary phenomenon that it has different conditions different constituencies and agencies and that's not entirely true and it does have this kind of back and forth relationship with the state because part of the function of fascist movements is its relationship to those in power and capital and whether or not it's useful or threatening at any given time Um, and in this case it was incredibly mobilized on an international scale as part of like these wars like to destabilize leftist movements. I don't see there's any reason to believe that that's an entirely different model than we have now. I mean, and particularly in an era of sort of national populist parties rising all over the place and the effect that they have on sort of attacking the left in a really organized and effective way. Right. And you can also look at the breakdown of the Italian Republic during the um, clean hands scandal, where many members, not only of the Christian Democrats, but also the Socialist Party, were exposed for corruption. This led to the annihilation of the Christian Democrat Party and the emergence of Silvio Berlusconi as the sort of premier politician and a right-wing populist. Berlusconi was seen as really the sort of like emergent right-wing populist in Europe who really set the mold. So Italy is the place where the radical right gains its post-Cold War traction first. And you see with Berlusconi and the transformation of the Italian Republic, what a lot of people actually refer to as the Second Republic because of its dynamic transition away from the earlier model, is an increasing presidentialism, the type of which was already desired by fascist revolutionists who were coordinating with 
dissident members of the Liberal Party and the Christian Democratic Party during the 1970s. Now, it's wrong to say that the fascists wanted to stop at presidentialism. They wanted to move forward to fascism. But the presidentialist system that Italy has moved increasingly towards really reflects the, the end goal of a lot of far-right actors in the 1970s, right? So, so the failure of these trials, where you have this ludicrous spectacle of a judge saying that people who had been acquitted in the first round were actually guilty, and it just couldn't be retried, which is already an indictment of the justice system right there within the context of the, the, the same case. So, yeah. So I don't know. I'm just rambling at this point. But but uh, if you if you look at the track of the Piazza Fontana bombing and the ensuing failures of the trials, you can kind of see the course of the dissolution of Italy's parliamentary democracy and and the emergence of right-wing populism well so goes italy there goes the world that's kind of how it happened i mean i hate to say it and berlusconi at this point doesn't have nearly as much power as he did in the 90s right. but the people that he brought up with him have more power than he does now his first coalition i think in 1994 was uh inclusive of a party that erupted from the MSE called the National Alliance, Alianza Nazionale, on the one hand. So basically, he brought the MSE into power uh, under the auspices of this new face. Gianfranco Fini, who was the, the protege of Giorgio Almirante, the head of the MSE. So on one hand, you have that. And then on the other hand, you have Lega Nord, who was the second coalition partner in Berlusconi's first government. Lega Nord were the reason for the dissolution of that first parliamentary coalition because they refused to abide by some of the Rome-centered ideas. But they've dropped their regionalism, and now they're one of the most powerful parties in all of Italy, next to a new, new-ish party called Fratelli d'Italia, uh, the Brothers of Italy, which is also sort of uh, one of the spawn of the MSE. Hmm. So why do you think that that relates to uh, the U.S. right now? A lot of people in Italy were looking at Trump and just being like, oh, look, he's like, you know, the Berlusconi of, of the United States. And, and he was compared to Berlusconi also by some of the sort of uh, leading scholars of the radical right, including Cass Muda. So, you know, you've seen some degree of influence, I think, with Berlusconi's kind of what Ranciere called uh, post-politics, just sort of like hyping up groups of people without like mentioning any policies or their possible implications with with Trump and then you also see his links again with different far right organizations you also see in the US fascist movement some direct ideological descendants of Franco Freda Freda's book Disintegration of the System I guess it's more of a pamphlet is pretty well known among the accelerationist far right in the United States and, and um, all over the world, I suppose. He's kind of reached a new audience of 
extraordinarily bewildered and angry teenagers who believe that it's their duty to destroy the modern world and bring about a white ethnostate. So we we see a lot of the the same currents and tendencies assembled within the style of uh, far right populism that Trump deploys and the sorts of characters that it enables within U.S. society. Jeez, oh, but we I... haven't we haven't had, and I'm touching wood here, but we haven't had our Piazza Fontana. Hmm. Yeah, and I, but you know, we're about to enter a new kind of period of heightened potential violence, at least a kind of cultural acceptance of violence on the right, where it could head. Oh, what what comes next? What's in the next episode? You know, I have some episodes on the Reggio revolt and the silent majority protests and the Sindona affair, which was a huge financial scandal. That's exciting. I'm I'm excited to stick with the uh, the saga that you're presenting here. Yeah, like uh, what do you what do you got to plug? You want to? I think you did this a little bit last episode, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Do do your plugs. I will. I'll plug. I'm gonna do some plugging. Um, so uh, my most recent book, uh, Why We Fight: Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse, is out. Uh, Came out last year, so check that out. Um, I have an anthology that. Uh, Sasha here was gracious enough to be a part of this big behemoth of a book on anti-fascism called No Passeron. Um, that will come out towards the end of the year, but we're doing a Kickstarter to pay all writers and stuff starting in the spring. So keep a lookout for that. And I'll be announcing a couple of other book projects shortly. And check me out on Twitter at, uh, at Shane underscore Burley one. Awesome. And definitely check out uh, those books. I really love some of the essays there, the age of the the wolf age, is that what it's called? <laughs> yeah. That, that, that I say rocks. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's mainly my, uh, my deal. I, I like to be the, uh, you know, a, a, a rock star version of anti-fascism as know, much as right? possible, you know, yeah. filled with obscure occultic references and, uh, and ephemera. Yeah, absolutely. You are like the Sebastian Bach to my meatloaf yeah i live my life according to sebastian Bach. in all honesty you know <laughs> all right know, sure. i've been listening to bon jovi all afternoon it's been kind of how i get through my day you know for real yeah, that's amazing that's amazing <laughs> I, bad medicine was my jam back in elementary school oh it's still my jam that's still yeah. a deep cut all right well all right. shane it's been a fucking pleasure man no, always, always. But have, have me get back again because I know this is going to go on for a while because you got some deep history to get into. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, definitely. Thanks. And thanks to all you listeners out there. If you like what you hear, please drop us some money in the Patreon. That's patreon.com dash years of lead pod. And follow me on Twitter at, at years of lead pod. We will hopefully be rolling out free episodes on a weekly basis with new guests along with interesting interviews and bonus episodes for our Patreon subscribers. So stay tuned as we plunge into the dark heart of the years of lead.